Good morning. I just want to confess that I still haven't recovered from the start of the service. Uh, went to pull up my notes and it said uh, document not available. And so my heart is still pounding. Whew. Of all the days, of all the days, that is not the snafu I needed. But uh, thank God for internet. I was able to go to the blog and pull up scaled down version and trust Holy Spirit to to do something. Um, so I'm still kind of breathing hard. Uh, um, secondly, uh, just want to say to you this morning that uh, in the question and answer series, the the question uh, that was asked that we're going to deal with today is homosexuality and the Christian's response. Uh, it's something that today I, I recognize on the front end. I'm probably not going to be able to satisfy everybody in the room because some of you are probably going to think I'm not um, hard enough. And then some of you are going to think I, I may... Um, be relying on scripture too much who knows um you just never can tell on this issue and i I really mean that um there's a list of passages that you're welcome to go look at at any point in time listed in the notes Uh, but on the front end the first thing i want to say is is um this issue takes on a different tone when you know someone who has had or has currently the situation where they are wrestling with homosexual desires and who has sought to fight it off, but been dragged into the abyss of this desire by its iron clutches that are rooted in idolatry and pride. Um, I believe that anyone who has stared this issue down and worked with anyone who has stared down this issue takes a different tone than a person who may address it from the ivory tower of pride and self-righteousness as though their sin is somehow not as repugnant to the Lord as the person who has a homosexual desire. And I feel like the reality that faces us as Christians is that every time this issue is dealt with on national television, they grab the, the moron, quote, Christian, and they sit them across the table from the person who's wrestling with the issue. And the moron sits there and in the name of Christ represents all of us in foolish, ignorant statements. And nobody, nobody ever asks them, is that really true? Why are you saying that? And, 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 and it goes on both sides, both sides. Um, I want to say to you this morning, without going into detail, this has been something I have had to work with, with individuals who've wrestled with it. And so I speak to you from from those experiences and from the scriptures as recognizing that that um, that when we're dealing with this, we're not dealing with an abstract idea or concept. We're dealing with image bearers of the living God. And so therefore, when we come at this issue, we recognize that we are dealing with people and not just that an issue that's isolated from people. Does that make sense? And so this morning, that's, that's if you have a friend, and I hope you do. I hope you are friends with folks who are wrestling with this. Because I want to say, I'm going to get to this in just a few minutes. And, and I'm going to take longer than I normally take. Because I really want to finish this today. And I think it's important that we finish it. Um, you need to understand that um, you want them to come to you. You want to be the kind of person that anyone who is wrestling with this issue can come to and know that they are not going to be cast out, but they are going to be loved on, dealt truthfully with, and can remain a friend to. Proverbs 6, 16 to 19 says this. There are six things that the Lord hates. And I want to set the tone with this because we have a tendency to elevate sins above the other. And I've tried my best not to deal with individual sins in here because uh, it has a tendency to, to communicate that this sin is worse than this sin and so on and so forth. And so I just want to, I want to let the scripture speak to this issue here and hopefully give you the right tone that as you walk out of here you take maybe this tone. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Homosexuality isn't in that list, okay? So what I want you to do is you come to this issue, recognize that we're dealing with an issue that's a real issue, it's a real sin issue, but I don't want you to elevate it above your own sin issue. 
I don't want you to treat anybody who's wrestling with this issue as though somehow your sin, my sin, is less repugnant to the Lord than that sin. Okay? That makes sense? Hopefully that puts us all on a level playing field this morning, that we come to each other recognizing this morning that we all walk in this building as broken image bearers. Okay? And so therefore, if you're sowing discord among brothers through gossip, God hates that. He's not happy with that. It's not like Lord's going, oh, great idea. He hates it. Feet that are swift to run to evil. He hates those things. And so we want to make sure we come to the table, level ground before the Lord, not exalting another person's sin above mine. And we want to deal with it well. And I hope that's what we're going to do this morning. If you're looking at the notes, they probably don't make a lot of sense to you until we talk through them. I want to start with, with something I think is absolutely vital. And that is dealing with the meta narrative of marriage. Because if we come at this issue by just taking what Paul said on it, isolating it from the grand story of who God is, who man is, what God's mission is among mankind, we can end up making more of the issue than we make about the gospel. And we're not going to do that at this church. So we're going to look at the meta narrative. What's the reality of who God is? What did God do? What did God create? And how does that then color properly how we look at and approach this issue? And then points two all the way down, we'll spend some time unpacking that, okay? So go with me to Genesis 2. Genesis chapter 2. I just want to say this to some of us guys in here. Um, I'll tell you what broke me of this was actually looking in the eyes of an image bearer who didn't want this and couldn't get rid of it. God, here I go. Dang it. To break me of my stupid poking fun. And we all do it, men. We have a tendency to. And I want you to know that has no place in the kingdom of God. And it took me staring in the eyes of an image bear that was broken with this issue, recognizing what a fool I am. So if you're a dude, and this isn't your issue, make sure that you don't poke fun at somebody in ignorance whose issue it is when they may be sitting in the room and they're silent about it, and you're making fun of them, and they won't say anything about it because they don't want to be ostracized. You make sure you're not that guy. Okay? Genesis 2. Because I used to be that guy. And, and so anyway. Genesis 2. Beginning in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land. And no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. The Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land. And watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man who he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. And it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. 
The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, and this is the first song of the Bible. This is poetic. It's set across some of your Bibles. It's set apart in the text, letting you know this is a song. He sings. He comes and he sings. This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. A man and the wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Amen. Right? Everything created by God was created to be enjoyed to the worship of the Father. Not to be enjoyed in itself. The Lord made everything, and He, at the pinnacle of His creation, made man in His image. And He put man in the garden there to tend it, to take care of it, to enjoy it, to be part of managing His creation. In the created order, one of the beautiful realities of creation narrative in Genesis is we discover that this created order was there to be enjoyed. And that joy in creation was to be the power up into worship of enjoying Father, Son, and Spirit. That man was made to enjoy creation and that enjoyment of creation was to move him to look up and give thanks to Father, Son, and Spirit for that, for enjoyment in that. And that would birth this exalting joy in him to the Father for the enjoyment of creation. And one of the bad raps on Christianity is that Christians are no fun and that Christians are are. are Terrible at enjoying things. Christianity is all about what you don't do. And, and, and to some extent that critique is accurate. But accurate in the sense of that's what often gets creative and accurate. That's what gets communicated and accurate in the sense that that's not what it really is. That God made things to enjoy. And that enjoyment would not abort in the creation. But it would lead us to the exaltation in the Lord through that created peace of whatever it is. He put them there and he gave them one little command. And we don't have time to deal with when did the angelic hosts fall. But apparently sometime between the end of Genesis 1 and now there has been a rebellion. And the Lord has placed there one tree, gave them one command, right? Don't eat of this tree. And it's not even a difficult command. It's not as though they couldn't climb on the tree. It's not as though they couldn't look at the tree. It's not as though they couldn't touch the tree. They just couldn't eat from the tree. And you take a look at that one command compared to often how the workings out of Christianity happen among us today. And you'd think that Christianity was a system of law-abiding not enjoyment. In the next chapter, we get the fall. Eve is having a conversation with the evil one. Adam is standing passively by watching this take place. She believes the lie that she can be like God. She can take the place of God. She can know good and evil. She can make her own decisions. She can live outside of the rhythm and the flow of created order and do her own thing. Even misquoting, misunderstanding the Father. The Bible uses this word shalom, which is a fun word. It, it means peace and flow, rhythm, that there was, a, there was a shalom to creation. And it was, there was a rhythm to it. It worked and it was right and it was good. And at the moment of the fall, that shalom, that peace was crushed. The rhythm of creation was thrown off. And the Father had told them that if you rebel against me and you rebel against my one command, that he would crush them, would kill them. And they rebelled. But Father, when it's all said and done, was gracious and merciful, and he does not kill them. As a matter of fact, he takes it into his own hands to kill some animals 
covered their now shame and their nakedness and expels them from the garden. And at this point, man would now have a hard time working the land. Man had been given a job, work the land, take care of the land. The land will, it's, it's in rhythm, it works, it flows right. And now that flow's been crushed and he's, the land's going to do stuff it's not supposed to do. And, and it's not going to work right. And you're going to have a hard time cultivating the land. And now the woman is going to have a harder time giving birth. And there's going to be tension between man and woman. That tension playing out sometimes with passive males and overly aggressive males. Headship geared women and overly passive women. And this conflict and relationship would now be present because the flow had been crushed. They're expelled from the garden and mankind goes from the garden and continues to rebel. The next chapter in Genesis we see Cain killing Abel. The father continues to be gracious and merciful. And every now and then the father brings justice. Which by the way, people always bring up the difficult justice passages of the Old Testament. But they never bring up the other passages where the Lord is gracious, merciful and kind and passes over their sin. I would almost argue 90 plus percent of the passage in the Old Testament of the Lord is the Lord passing over their sin and being gracious and merciful. And very few passages are when the Lord says, that's enough. You've pillaged my shalom enough. And so more oftentimes than not, the Lord is gracious and merciful and kind. I needed a drink and I took the lid off and put it back on. Matthew 19, 4 to 6, Jesus comes and Jesus argues. And the reason we read Genesis 2 is because Jesus argues from this passage, from the meta narrative of created order for the marriage relationship to be male and female, in his reasoning for why marriage should not be broken up by man. Because it's something God had ordained and put together. Man made to enjoy woman. Woman made to enjoy man to the exalting of the Father. Ephesians 5, 24-32. Paul again quotes Genesis 2. Arguing from the meta-narrative of created order. And the marriage relationship is a projection, a proclamation of the glorious love of God for His people. Whereby He would bring them to Him. They would love, respect Him He would honor, take care of them, and that relationship would be put together and made right so that in marriage there's a mysterious proclamation of the glorious work of God among man. So that we understand that relationship man to woman is defined by God for the enjoyment of each other, and that enjoyment of each other would then turn to the exaltation and worship of the Lord. Does that make sense? Well, let me skip to point number three, and we'll come back to point number two. This leads to talk, talk about law and joy. Galatians 3.24, and the whole book of Galatians in general, shows us that the law then came for a specific purpose. God gave us the law with specific commands in it, not because God made anything innately bad. Okay? That's bad theology. God didn't give us the law because God goes, oh gosh, I I messed up the pig. And so don't eat pig, it's bad for you. No, it's not. The Lord finished creation and what did He say? It was good. And He didn't give us the law to further explain what I really meant was... "Eh." There's no tension there. The problem is not created order. The problem is that we, because of the fall and the crushing of the image of God, the peace of God, the rhythm of God in creation, because of rebellion, has taken the creation. And we in the creation have a tendency now no longer to come at creation as good for the glory of God. Creation for the sake of creation so that our joy aborts in creation, ignoring God and leaving Him out there ignored so that creation becomes idolatrous for us. 
that our joy then aborts in creation. Sex for sex's sake. Relationship for relationship's sake. That's why I try to tell students all the time. And they're little relationship dramas. The point is not the relationship for you. So dude, what you're saying when you approach the girl from the meta-narrative is, God <coughs> has given you to me so that through you, my enjoyment of you, I will exalt in Him. So I'm ready to be Jesus to you. You're ready to be church to me. And together we will make much of the Lord. And there's not a dude in this room in high school who can say that. I know. Because your purpose is she's hot. And I want to delight in your hotness. That's the mission. Ladies, just know now. You are his idol. His joy aborts in you. And it, and you can put God's name on it and, and dress it in a Christian t-shirt and it's idolatry. His mission is not his exalting in the Lord. His mission is his exalting in you. And so, the law was given to show us the extent to which man in the fall has now taken the creation and made idols out of it. So that we approach everything as though it were the end in itself. We approach food as though food were the end in itself. Is the mission is the food, not the food to lead me to you made taste buds. And that causes my mouth to dance. And that wants me to dance because you did that. That kind of transformed the way you approach lunch, won't it? God made the creation to delight in. He made marriage to be a delightful pursuit of each other's joy in a sexual union that led us to the enjoyment of Father, Son, and Spirit. Isn't that awesome? That this is to be a worship experience. But... So much of what we've done in Western Christianity is we have taken the commands of God, misused the commands of God, and created a system whereby we bypass the gospel and make an idol for ourselves in the image of man to save ourselves with by saying, if I do these things, and I don't do these things, I'm okay. When in fact, all things were made for our enjoyment. And the problem is not the things. The problem isn't sex. The problem isn't food. The problem isn't whatever it happens to be there. The problem is that you and I are now idol factories. The problem for you and I is now that the image of God, the shalom, the rhythm has been crushed. The image of God in us has been marred. And we no longer exult in the Father through creation. We exult in creation. And that's where it ends. Our hearts are idol factories because of the fall. The fall, the crushing of the image of God in man perverts everything. Absolutely, positively, every single thing. There is nothing that the fall has not touched. Including man's inner wiring and his orientation sexually. Which, by the way, whether it means that orientation is pointed in the wrong direction, male to male, female to female, or whether it be male to female in an unhealthy fashion of just very simply an insatiable, unsatisfiable desire so that one becomes an adulterer. That I will not be satisfied in my wife. I must have more. Right? That, that, that image of God has been crushed because of the fall. So that whether it's orientation or desire that is not fixable because it's broken, leads to adultery. The image of God has been crushed. The unfortunate thing for evangelical Christianity is I think there's been a deception. 
One of the deceptions that we have, not us, but maybe evangelical Christianity in general, has propagated is that the magic prayer is a way to fix the problem. The idea is if you pray this prayer and you believe with all your heart, Jesus will take away the sin and heal you right here. And I've worked with a particular student who that was the case. And the only problem was the desire didn't go away. And then they hooked him up with a mentor who had supposedly conquered the sin and then the mentor began to abuse the kid. The idea that if I just pray this prayer, this wiring is just going to instantly fix and correct itself. The truth is, Jesus will save you and give you a new heart, but we all have a fallen flesh that we have to fight from now on until we crawl into the grave. And that fallen flesh has sin in it, and until Jesus fixes that completely at death or the second coming, we will wrestle against sin from now on. And that may be the sin that you wrestle with, that someone else wrestles with. When I became a Christian, there were things that changed instantly. But there were some things that are still present that still jump up and bite me on the bottom. And fighting sin is still a war. Dude, I got saved in the middle of moralistic therapeutic deism. It's one of the reasons I'm a Calvinist. Is God saved me when I, in the middle of not ever hearing the gospel. I mean, I got saved... When you go to youth camp, and the idea is if you stop listening to your music or you quit having premarital sex, and you come pray this magic prayer, you're now a follower of Jesus, and all will be well. That's what I got preached to for, that's what, I'm sorry, that's what was preached to me for 20 years. Don't do these things, come to church, pray this prayer, and all is well. That's not Christianity. That is moralistic deism at best. And in spite of that, God reached down with the proclamation of the gospel in one setting and saved me out of all that. It's amazing that out of moralistic deism, God would would save me. And in doing that, there are some things that corrected instantly. There are some that still aren't corrected. And I have to fight them. They may never go away. It may be a daily war from now on. And if you'll be honest with yourself, you have those issues too. Whether it's sexual orientation, issues of lust, pride, picket, whatever. Another problem in the evangelical world is we've sold out in order to facilitate growth. Much of evangelical Christianity has sold holiness out in order to grow. So what you do is you pick the sins that people are hot about and you preach against them. But let unbiblical divorce, failure to give, adultery slide. Bash homosexuality. Well, you know, we just overlook the fact that you didn't do your marriage right. Overlook the fact that you're robbing the kingdom of God by keeping God's money and not giving. If you came to Three Rivers Community Church, you signed a church covenant that said you would obey the scriptures. And we talk about church discipline, right? You sacrifice growth if you deal with biblical sin. So what we do is we sacrifice holiness for the sake of growth. And people who are like. Jesus, Christianity, this is great. Sin, no, not so much. Big deal. They let me do whatever the heck I want to do. And unfortunately, that's not truth. The reality is that whether it be homosexuality, whether it be pride, whether it be gossip, whether it be adultery, whether it be unbiblical divorce, whatever the case may happen to be, we are called to holiness. And we're going to talk in just a minute how we respond to that. So what's wrong with humanity? Turn me to Romans chapter 1. In this passage, Romans chapter 1, Paul now comes to deal with 
what has happened to humanity because of the fall. The, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I want you to hear me this morning. If you're in this building and this is your sin, you need to understand that you are just like me and everyone else in this room. Is your, The image of God in you was crushed from the fall. And the love of God is as powerful over you as it is anyone in the room. And the gospel is powerful and can give you a new heart. Hear that. Hear that. And give you the capacity to fight. The power of God for salvation, everyone who believes. Because the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Verse 18, 4, here's the reason that the gospel is powerful and God has revealed this salvation through the gospel by faith. Because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In other words, man in his unrighteous state suppresses truth. And by the way, grammatically, this is an active suppression, not a passive suppression. It is he is actively suppressing truth and unrighteousness. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So what happens? Man suppresses the truth of God. It's plain to them, but they continue to suppress it in their fallen state anyway. They didn't give honor to God or give thanks to Him. And as a result, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged, here we go, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So what did man do? In his suppression of the truth, he began to exchange the truth of God for the lie of the image of other things as the object of their affection. You see that? That mankind, because of the fall, now looks at creation and rather through creation, seeing the Father, now comes to creation and says, Ah, God. And they take creation and begin to form it into images. They exchange the glory of God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Man's heart is an idol factory. Because of the fall, we come to creation. We see creation, whether it be sexuality, whether it be food, whether it be whatever your issue is. And by the way, it's pretty evident just from walking in a bookstore that mankind is flawed. What's the largest section of Barnes & Noble? Self-help. Why do I need help? Because I'm broke. Things don't work right. And so what we do in our fallen state, because the peace, the flow, the image of God has been crushed, we come and now we come to creation and we make idols out of creation. Our joy aborts in creation. Well, what happens? Verse 26, for this reason, what reason? What we just said, idol factories. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women who were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. You know what a dangerous place is to be? Handed over. You know, we have this idea of the judgment of God being this external lightning bolt that cracks me in the moment. That's what you hope for. I want the Lord to correct me. This is a different animal. 
In these instances, he gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. In other words, you want an idol? You want to make an idol out of creation? Go for it. Have at it. The passive wrath of God on mankind for his idolatry. They, will, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they neither... Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Father created man for the woman. And when the fall factored in, and with the fall factored in, man begins to pursue the creation and the creature rather than the Father who made creation and creature. And man then takes it idle into his heart, And the order of marriage can be thrown out the window. And then man can, with a fallen affection, take man as his chief act of idolatry and rebellion while working against the created order. As heterosexual marriage is a picture of God's pursuit of man in the gospel, homosexual activity is a picture of man's rebellion against God and God's order and God's purpose. The chief issue here is idolatry. That is the chief issue. And that goes for pride. That goes for arrogance. That goes for lying. That goes for stealing. The chief issue is pride. I will be like God, knowing good and evil. I can do my own thing, make my own decisions, go my own way, do my own thing, do it my way, not God's way. And in such doing, we create idols, whatever it happens to be. Point number four, homosexual desire and homosexual activity are not the same thing. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, or men who practice homosexuality. Men who practice homosexuality. Is two words referring to the passive and active partner in that relationship. Nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's important to understand that the desire and the activity are two very different things. Just like some of you men lusting over other women other than your wife is not the same thing as giving into the desire and committing the act of adultery physically. Does that make sense? Just because one has the thought or because one sees the image does not mean they give into the image. That's another level. Does that make sense? So therefore, it's important to distinguish between desire and activity. Get to in a minute how we're going to respond. Which brings up some questions. Are people born with homosexuality? This is where some of you may not like me. Remember, the fall crushes everything. The fall crushes everything. Now, if you want to contend that mankind is born innocent, pure, no sin, no stain before God without the original sin of Adam on him, you can make your argument. We don't believe that. The Scriptures are clear that we're born under the condemnation of God because we're born with the sin of Adam. David said in the Psalms he was born, he was conceived in iniquity. The image of God in him was already stained and marred and crushed. And if we're born sinners, then it is quite possible that someone can be born with, tendency, with tendencies that if given into can lead to this lifestyle. A person can be born with crushed orientation issues just as well as a person who can be born with those issues intact. A person can be born with a crushed image of God that leads to promiscuity heterosexually. Because why? The image crushes, the image of God is crushed from the fall. And so it's important for us to understand that there is a difference between desire and activity. 
Because there may be some of you sitting here today, that is a desire, and you've not given in to it, and I say, amen, keep fighting. Because it's not the same to have the desire as it is to give in. Same with a man whose who's problem is lust and the computer. Don't give in. Right? It's no more sinful to be tempted with homosexuality than it is to be tempted with adultery. It's sinful to give in to the wrong desire. The issue is whether or not a person is repenting and fighting against it and giving into it. Number five, let me give you some arguments made by some for homosexuality being a legitimate lifestyle. One of those arguments is if it's not hurting other people, what's the problem? Didn't Jesus say to love your neighbor as yourself? Sounds good. The only problem is that's not the first thing Jesus said. Matthew chapter 23, verse 34 to 40, Jesus asks a question. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The way we have to come at answering that question is, yes, Jesus said love your neighbor as yourself, but he said to love God first and then love our neighbor as ourself. If we love God first, that should lead to right love of neighbor. And if I love my neighbor right, I will want to love the image of God in them, not just what they're doing in the flesh. Meaning I want to see the image of God in my neighbor restored because the image of God is the issue which is going to get to in a minute how we respond to this, we don't respond by behavior modification. We are not atheists. We are Christians. We don't want people modifying their behavior. We want a new heart that bursts in from the inside out, right? And so, and so we want to love the image of God in them restored. So we love God. If we love God first, we will love them, but we will also love the image of God in them. Not necessarily, hey, you do your own thing. It's not hurting anybody else because it's hurting them. Number two, since we are sinners, who are we to call other people out, right? That's not the point. The issue isn't the sin. The issue is repentance. Yes, I am a sinner. I have serious, deep, grained sin issues. But the sin isn't the point. The point is my repentance of those sins. My report, my, the point is that I am striving to, to work against that. That I am fighting hard. That I am straining against those things. And I'm putting forth an effort to fight. I'm accountable I listen, I repent, and I work hard against those things. That's the point. Which, by the way, we should be called out. That's love. We encourage one another to repent and turn from sin. That, that's, that's what happens. Number three, one argument made is Jesus really didn't ever say anything about homosexuality. Right. He didn't. The problem with that is Jesus never said anything about bestiality either. Did he? You don't argue from silence in Scripture. This is Christianity, Discipleship 101. Just because it doesn't come out of the mouth of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John doesn't mean... That Jesus is for it. You start with a proper understanding of Trinitarian theology. That Jesus, second person of the Trinity, is also one God, three distinct persons. Is the inspirer of the whole biblical text. So whether it comes out of the incarnate Son of God's mouth in the Gospels is irrelevant. The point is, He inspired the whole scriptural text, including Paul, to write. So if it didn't come out of Jesus' mouth in the Gospels, doesn't mean that Paul's speaking to it and Moses writing it in Leviticus is illegitimate. It's not illegitimate. It's legitimate because the same Jesus who spoke incarnate in the Gospels is the same Jesus who inspired the authors of Scripture. 
Never argue from silence in Scripture. It's bad practice. One thing Jesus did say in Matthew 15, 18 to 20. If you turn there with me very quickly. Matthew 15, 18 to 20. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees about what really defiles a person. Not eating with unwashed hands. That's, that's not the issue. And it's not what you eat. So... Eat a bacon cheeseburger today. I am. And I will exult in the glory of God. And give thanks. Emmett, thank you for that, Jenny. Bacon cheeseburger. Still enjoying that. Jesus says, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, Adultery, sexual immorality. This word translated sexual immorality is the word pornea. You recognize that root word anywhere? And it means in particular any sexual deviance of any kind from the meta narrative. Sexual relationship is made for marriage, which preaches the gospel in its physical. Spiritual and emotional bond. Anything that deviates from the meta narrative comes from the crushed image of God out of the heart of man. And Jesus says, That's what defiles a person. I think that's enough. Another argument made is that if any activity, if an activity is done elsewhere in nature, it has to be okay, right? Normal behavior, because there are some species of animals that have male-to-male and female-to-female behavior. So it's normal, right? This has to be a fringe anomaly. Because if it were normative, think just logically work with me here for a second. If that were normative, the species couldn't survive because it couldn't reproduce. This is where natural selection as a worldview contradicts many who hold the belief and adhere to homosexual behavior as normative. Which, by the way, inside this argument, many people who hold to the belief that it's normative behavior are also naturalists who believe in natural selection. And, and, and that's dangerous for them. Because if that's normative behavior, what they're saying is nature has selected to breed them out of existence because they are connecting in a way they can't reproduce and therefore they will cease to exist. It has to be a fringe anomaly. It doesn't make sense. Some animals kill their mate after breeding. But we don't advocate that either. I mean, this, I mean, it is kind of funny, but at the same time, too, it shows you the nature of the crushed image of God in man that we would take something that is fringe because of the fall and creative order and go, oh, that's normal. That's infinitely devastating to the soul. This is... Number five, homosexuality in the Bible is not the same as it is today. Paul's talking about exploitive rape. That's an argument that's actually made. And Paul's not against homosexuality for those who are born with this issue, but he's against homosexuality for heterosexual practice. The only problem with that is I found some images that I wouldn't bring in here and put up on the screen from archaeological study of that display homosexuality not as exploitive but as consensual so when Paul's speaking to this issue he's speaking to the issue across the board not some exploitive issue there's far too much archaeological evidence that shows that it was accepted not in an exploitive way but in a consensual way so Paul's talking about what he's talking about finally modern scholarship Paul really didn't mean what he said the only problem is that's what we call in theological circles, eisegesis. That's bringing your issue to the text and bending the text to make the text say what you want to say. And we can do that about lots of things. Don't bring your issue to the text to make the Bible say what you want it to say. Read the Bible, let it speak, apply the truth, and seek to fight for it. Okay, how do we respond? Which, by the way, I've had to, I've just, there's so much here, and I've had to cut most of it, but... Um,
How do we respond? Number one, love. How does a Christian respond to this issue? Love. That's how we respond to it. Romans 5, 6, and 8, For a while we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us, and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. That goes for every single one of us in this room. There's not a soul who walked in this room this morning that wasn't in need of love, the love of the gospel, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for me. And as Christ came to die while I was still a sinner for me, in love for me, likewise we must affirm that same love relationally. It has to be part and parcel of who we are. We will love, right? Those fringe lunatics who stand outside with signs that say God hates queers, that better never be anybody in this congregation. Unless you hold one right beside it that says God hates me, a prideful, arrogant idolater too. But he doesn't. While I was still yet to be conceived in the eternal plan of God, Christ looked at my sin and loved me and came and died in my place for my sin. And we will never cast out one who comes seeking the love of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? Hope. Number two, patience. I'm still waiting on those two to come back. If you've ever looked in the eyes of an image bearer that's wrestling with this, it's devastating to see the darkness and the coldness and the confusion. And we don't cast them off because they don't conform their external behavior. Wrestling this sin may take a lifetime to win against, and it may not be won until death or the return of Christ. But it can and it will be defeated one day. Brad said it already, Philippians 1 6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. I'm trusting that in the good plan of God, He can bring them and He can fix that in them. So patience, recognizing that if you're going to love somebody through this, they're not a project for you to chalk up on the board. I got them saved. They're a human being, created in the image of God. That image has been crushed. And you patiently endure and work with them. And if they hate you for it, you receive that hatred the way Jesus took the hatred for my sin. And you patiently endure with them. Number three, welcoming. When I say welcome, I don't mean acceptance of the sin as normative behavior. I think I've been clear this morning. I hope I have. This is a sin issue, right? I don't mean welcoming and accepting as normative. I mean a true 1 Timothy 2, 1-7 desire for all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Paul said to his young Protege, first of all, I then urge you the supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. There's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle, telling the truth, not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. We welcome them and we pray that they may be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. As long as you're willing to fight sin, you're welcome here. If you're willing to fight your pride, if you're willing to fight your lust, if you're willing to fight whatever it is that besets you, you are welcome here. If you give in to your sin, whether it be adultery, lust, whatever it happens to be, and you full on run into that sin with no desire to repent we will do what we say we'll do we'll love you as jesus taught us to love you in matthew 18 and that is we will exercise church discipline for the purpose of seeing your salvation not because of hatred but because we don't want to see you kill your soul whatever that sin happens to be
Fourth, humility. We've got to recognize we too are fighting sin. Repentance is the issue, not our deep internal sin. Humbly recognize, I hope you're engaged in fighting your sin. If not, please. It's the mark of a follower of Jesus Christ. Five, the gospel. Dude, we're not into behavior modification. (laughs) Um, External, outside, in, discipleship never works. Because you can can burn all your non-Christian music if you want to. But that's not going to change your heart's desire. Which, please don't. If you're going to burn it, send it to me. I'm, I'm a fan of... <laughs> One time, they were this cat uh, in a youth group. And I was supposed to be the transformed leader. Which, I, I mean, I was a young Christian. But he was he was about to burn a Beastie Boys CD. And I said, no, wait, oh, wait, oh, wait, wait, wait. Can I have that? <laughs> he let me... <laughs> I'm not... And you know what? In all seriousness, that, that kid today is not in the gospel. I know him. I know where he works. I see him frequently. He's not in the gospel. Behavior modification doesn't work. Burning your CDs, whatever it is you do to modify your behavior will not work. It's not law-keeping. It is the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ come to die in the place of sinners and rising to secure redemption. So if you repent and believe, he will give you his righteousness, take your sin, transform your heart. That's what we want, is that inside-out working. Because the inside change will work into repentance. Even if have, if you have to spend your entire life repenting from that same thing over and over and over and over and over again, it is the issue working from the inside out. So let me say to you this morning, if you're wrestling with this, keep fighting. I want to help you fight. I need help fighting my sin. Keep fighting. Six, this is for the Christian wrestling with the sin. Fight the sin. Two words I give you here, the old school words, and I'll try to define them for you. Vivification. It's a big word. Vivi, life, vive, life, vacation, to ficate. <laughs> um, it means to stir up Jesus-centered affections. If you're a Christian fighting the sin, stir up affections. Man, desire is a powerful thing. If we'll all be very honest, we do what we do out of desire. It's like Jonathan Edwards wrote in his book, Freedom of the Will. We all do what we consider to be best for us. What desire is down in there. We do what we desire and what we believe is best for our desires. Don't we? we when we sin, we do it because we don't believe the fruit of righteousness is better than the fruit of sin. Let's be honest, right? It, it appears in that moment that if I sin, that's going to be better for me than if I do what's right. And for a moment, feels like, oh. and then like two seconds later, it's like, oh. right? Stir up Christ-centered affection. Stir them. And, and, and it's, it's the same old line. Bible, Holy Spirit, prayer, fellowship. Stir Christ-centered affections. Stir life. Stir life. And don't stop stirring life. If you need to spend 40 days refusing to swallow your spit, like a good Muslim fast. I don't mean doing away with your favorite television show for a week. I mean, I need to stir my soul. And in order to feed on the bread of God, I will not take human bread until you awaken me to life. Do it! Stir Christ-centered affections. Then mortification of the flesh. Great work written by an old dead guy. Mortification of the flesh. Make war on sin. Make war on sin. Don't give in to sin. Whatever the sin happens to be, make war on it. Do whatever you have to do to crush the sin. I'm tired of dudes coming and telling me they have a porn problem. Throw your computer in the street. You don't need a computer. I'm tired of having fifth graders come to my office and they have phones and they're getting text messages from people who aren't being nice. When does a fifth grader need a phone? Are you serious? Like, I want to take their phone, their iPhone, and throw it in the wall. But then I would get a phone call and, take, and an email and broke my son's phone. I'm like, you're breaking their soul, man. Are you serious? Like, for real. Like, fight sin. If your computer's your problem, trash it. 
You can live without it. Your heart will keep beating. Your lungs will still pump air. You go to Kroger and buy food. You don't have to grow food. You go to Kroger and buy food. You see what I'm saying? If make war on your sin. Is that it all makes sense? Make war on sin. Don't just keep giving in to it. I'm preaching to the choir. Make war on sin. By the way, that's old school Southern Baptist for preaching to myself. Sorry. If you're not used to that. And then finally, fellowship. Fellowship. You got to be in fellowship. Fellowship is not simply attending. It is being in relationship with. It is knowing. And in that fellowship, when we get into the first John starting on up into January, we're going to be dealing with this issue of fellowship, accountability. Sin can hide in darkness and thrive. But when sin is brought into the light of community, sin has a tendency to shrivel. Not always. But community is a way we fight for the mortification of sin and flesh. The killing of sin. If you do life together under the word, things get brought to light. Thankful for the group of men that I spend time with every week who, who, um, who will tell truth. Sin can't hide in community. I'm convinced one of the reasons that community is so hard to pull off is because I'd rather hold on to my sin than I would to have you uncover it and for you to see me for who I really am. Church, I hope that's how we will respond to people who wrestle with this sin. I hope this is how we'll respond to each other as we wrestle with our individual sin issues together. Because either way, we are all in the same boat of the fall. The gospel can transform us and we must fight together in community for the eradication of sin, for the building of the kingdom, and for the reconstruction of our souls. You, you, know, you know what the beautiful thing that happens? The Bible uses this word sanctification and it's a really big word that means to clean you up. The Holy Spirit dwells in believers of the gospel. And Holy Spirit has a way of taking the scrub brush of the word and cleaning off all the rough edges. And it takes time. So this morning, if you believe the gospel, Holy Spirit dwells in you. And I want you to know this morning, He has not abandoned you or left you. And regardless of the impulse on the inside of you right now or when you walk out of here and that one thing that every single one of us knows what it is is going to grab us by the throat this afternoon, I want you to know that He has not abandoned you. But He dwells in you richly. Feed Him. Fight for truth. Strive against sin. And He can give you a win today. But fight. Okay, you, if you're in Christ, have deep hope. And so I want you to worship. By the way, corporate worship is one of the ways you fight. You know, sometimes it's hard to sing because your soul is heavy. You know what you need to do? Just sing. Just sing. You know, there's just a practical thing that happens when you just do what you know you're supposed to do. You just sort of start getting in the groove of it and go. Because then that becomes worship. Your soul will connect to that. And that just works sometimes, you know. I was sitting here trying to find my notes. And they're playing my favorite song. And I couldn't sing my favorite song. And I just said, I'm going to sing it anyway. And then I kind of forgot about my notes until I got up. And that's why I was breathing hard. And I said, oh, good, I forgot about that. That's good. So go away today. Fight. Because there's great hope in the gospel. Let me pray. Father, um, thank you for the work of the gospel. Thank you for Jesus Christ who came to die in my place for my sin. And I pray now that you will give us the wherewithal to be caught up into the meta narrative of the gospel and look at all of life through the lens of who you are, who we are, and what the fall has done to us and what you came to do to fix and reclaim in that. Help that to be how we work today. Pray, Father, that there will be no one in this, this gathering of people who will walk away in any way, shape, form, or fashion, cast out someone wrestling with this sin. 
And I pray, Father, that you would draw to us all who are weary and heavy laden and come to Jesus so you can give us rest. Would you please do that today? For whatever sin we're wrestling with, would you come, Lord Jesus, powerfully by the Holy Spirit and, and, and sweep through this place and give us rest? For some who need to be saved, maybe this morning they need to believe the gospel. I pray, Father, that you would blow on them the breath of eternal life. And the Holy Spirit would awaken them that they may see and savor Jesus Christ. And you'd give them a new heart so that they would love you and live. And that you would give them the ability to begin to fight for righteousness. I pray for those wrestling with sin today that you would fill them, Lord, and give them a desire to fight for right and for truth. Now as we come to respond to you in song, Holy Spirit, lift us up. Put your words in our mouths. The fruit of lips that praise your name, as the writer of Hebrews says. That we may make much of you and we would not exult in creation, but creation would this morning be a means by which we can lift our eyes and see you and say thank you. Thank you. So would you do that for us today? In Jesus' name we pray.